Okay, so let's take our Bibles and open them up to the New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, chapter 2 today, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. Remember, Paul is in jail, and he has joy. How many of you would have joy if you were sitting in the ancient world jails? Now, I'm sure that the um, amenities in the jail and the prison today are far superior to the amenities that they had back in Paul's day. So let's not make that comparison, all right? Um, most likely, uh, anything that was provided for by, to Paul was provided by his friends. And um, so he was in chains. And uh, yet, in the midst of his chains, he had great joy. And of course, now, if you remember the story of how the church in Philippi came about, uh, you remember that Paul and Silas um, were in jail even <laughs> during the founding of that church. And so this is a, a theme of, of great joy uh, to these believers as uh, they are growing in Christ, that they would have joy. So by way of a few uh, PowerPoint slides here, let me just uh, remind you of what we've been discussing in this theme. Uh, chapter 1, verse 25 uh, sets uh, really the idea for us is going further in the joy of the faith, all right? So as you grow in your Christian faith, you should go deeper, longer, further in the joy of your faith. And so that's what is going on. And then the proposition for the series is found over in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And so sometimes we forget to rejoice in the Lord. And when we forget to rejoice in the Lord, we're not actually advancing or going further in the faith. So if you're going to advance and go further in the joy of faith, then you always have to rejoice in the Lord. So that's been our, our series uh, proposition. Now today, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, uh, we're going to concentrate on this one thought, the joy of working out your salvation. So let's go ahead and read our text, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read down through verse 18, beginning in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here's the phrase that we're going to concentrate on today. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of, of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yes, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Do you see the theme of joy in our text today? Did you hear it? All right. For the same cause, rejoice. Um, if I'm pouring myself out um, as an offering, uh, 
for you and upon your sacrifice, then, hey, I rejoice. And so Paul says, I want you to work out your own salvation so that you can have joy uh, in the Lord. Now, as we go through this, we're going to talk about the difference between can you actually earn your salvation by working it? Or does this mean something other than earning salvation? Does it mean that you're demonstrating or you're exercising your faith? That would be the definition of working out in this context. So, what we have not done is the first part of chapter 2. Now, this is a, an incredible passage of Scripture. Um, this passage of Scripture exalts Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of one who is selfless and humble. He emptied himself. And so, here in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is the ultimate example as he advanced in the joy of his faith. You know, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, the scripture said this about his suffering, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So even as Jesus Christ was dying, he still had joy. And as he emptied himself and came to this earth as the lowest form of human being, that of a servant, he still had joy. Jesus was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God, and if you're filled with the Spirit, then that is the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5, that you have the fruit of joy in your life. And so Christ is this ultimate example of humility and service to follow. And so we can follow the example of Jesus, that's the first part of chapter 2. And then Paul is also pointing out that he is an example that one could follow. And um, Paul is serving in humility, and uh, he is showing them how that they too can have joy in their lives. Now, Christians need to allow God to work um, in them before he can work through them. Let me just elaborate on that, okay? You as a Christian need God to work in you before God can work through you. Many times why our service seems so empty is because we're not abiding. Are you reading your Bible? Do you have a time of prayer? Are you abiding in the Lord? Abide in the Lord, and then as you work out your salvation, you'll see the results, the fruit that remains, the joy that is there. Now, as we go through this, our first point here today is work out your salvation as an obedient child. Um, so here's what it says. Working out your salvation as an obedient child results in joy. Now, in verse 2, uh, verse 12, it says that they have always been obedient. And then in verse 13, that they're always empowered. So let's look at these two verses and explain uh, what is going on here. All right. So wherefore, when you see that word in the King James, why for is the therefore, therefore. <laughs> 
So why is that there? Well, because of verses 1 through 11, the example of Jesus. Because of the example of Jesus, then, um, the beloved church. Isn't that wonderful to know that Jesus calls you beloved? He loves you. As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Hey, isn't that wonderful? Uh, as a parent, it's always joyful to have children who obey when you're not around. Right? I'm sure a boss would appreciate it when an employee works when the boss isn't around. Okay? So that's a Christian work ethic. That's what we should be doing uh, as children to our earthly parents, but this is what we need to be doing in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. That's obedience. So obedience is a part of the Christian life. We live in such a culture within evangelical churches that we're really not told much to obey Jesus. We come to church and we get a lot of self-help help messages, but the best thing that we can do to help ourselves is obey Jesus. And so Paul is saying, uh, and he's complimenting the Philippian believers, you've always obeyed. Isn't that a good testimony? Isn't that a wonderful thing that you can look at the life of a mature Christian believer and just see that they walk an obedient life in their relationship with Jesus? I think that's a great thing. At least as a pastor, um, that rejoices my heart. When I see you, God's people, just walking that life of obedience and, and always there gives the idea of consistency. And that's just how you relate to Jesus. That's your consistent walk in the Lord. You have your personal time where you're abiding in the Lord and then you have your uh, corporate time when you're around other Christians and you're serving them and you're just being obedient and that's always there that that's consistent that rejoices the Lord's heart that rejoices the Apostle's heart and of course the Apostle is getting this from the Lord through inspired revelation and so this always consistency here that's there um, he's complimenting their obedience, service, and perseverance. And so Christians, um, we can obey uh, there. Um, you know how you really reach the heart of your children as when they're really little? Is if they'll obey you without supervision. Right. So we've got some children that have gone out to children's church and their parents are sitting in here. So let me just talk to you parents for a moment. The way that you parent them should be teaching them to obey even if you're not sitting right on top of them to do something. Because if you're always hovering over them, right? sometimes we call that a helicopter parent. Uh, today we've got lawnmower parents that just you know, demolish their children, right? Never let them make a choice. Don't teach them how to think for themselves. Uh, that just walk in and trample over uh, teachers and, and, and everything. So we, we've got those kind of parents. No, you, you have to teach your children what is right. You got to teach them what God's expectations are. 
and they should be able to do that of their own will. And that's when you know that you're achieving God's goal as a Christian parent, is when they will obey because they love Jesus. And so teach verses such as Ephesians 6, 4, uh, at 6, 1, uh, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I guarantee you there's not going to be a human uh, parent that's going to be perfect. So why do children have to obey imperfect people? Well, because we do it for the Lord. Um, if we can teach children that, then marriages will be a lot happier when they become adults. Because in the family, they'll know what Ephesians 5.21 is about. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Uh, a Christian wife will know what that's about. As she respects her husband, submits to her husband as unto who? The Lord. And so if we'll learn to teach this in the youngest stages of their lives, then when they grow up, they'll be blessed because they've always been obedient. They've always been consistent. So that's the idea here in verse 12. Now, um, I want to talk about this phrase, work out your own salvation, okay, uh, with fear and trembling. Uh, he's not suggesting that these believers in Philippi could achieve their own salvation through the quantity or the quality of their religious works, their, their deeds, all right? So maybe you're here today and you think that coming to church is going to earn you favor with God. Okay. Maybe you did a good deed this week. Maybe you either took down your neighbor's garbage cans to the street or you pulled them up from the street and you're thinking, hey, that's going to help me with God. Okay. Maybe you spent a lot of time in prayer this week and you think that's going to help you in your relationship with God to earn salvation. Okay. Maybe you've humbled yourself and you've been baptized and you think that's going to earn you salvation. Okay. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. So there's not one religious activity, deed, that merits the forgiveness of sins, that merits salvation. You are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. So that's not what Paul is talking about here when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, fear is respect. Uh, trembling is uh, just not wanting to mess up in God's sight. So he's suggesting that there should be an outworking, a translation into life that what we do matches what we say. Have you ever heard people outside the church criticize the church that what they do and what they say don't match? That's what Paul's talking about here. There, there needs to be that translation from what you say is worked out into your life. Um, it's working uh, out, not working for. There's a huge difference there. So the salvation spoken of here is not justification, but your growth as a Christian. The technical term for that is sanctification. Okay. Victory over sin in the living of life that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus. 
And so we're not working to become God's children. Um, just as if there's a child or a teenager in the room today, you're not working to be the child of your parents. No, that just happened at birth, right? And the same with those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. You were born into God's family through faith and trust. So you're not working to become God's child. You're demonstrating that you are God's child. And so uh, let's just go back one book to Ephesians chapter 2 and show you what part good works do play in our salvation. Ephesians 2 uh, will go through uh, chapters 8, uh, I'm sorry, verses 8, 9, and 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So it's not going to be as a result of your own religious activity. Verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. Um, you know, there might be people that have an opportunity to do a whole lot more religious works than you. And that might be an unfair advantage. Well, you see, God doesn't credit salvation to us that way. All right? Comes through faith and grace, verse 8. So, what do good works, uh, what part is that uh, in salvation? Well, look in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, verse 8 and 9, you're saved by faith and grace. Verse 10, God expects you to work out that salvation that's experienced in verses 8 and 9, through faith and grace. So, his plan for you as a Christian, and a Christian is someone who has repented, that means they've abandoned themselves, they've embraced God's plan of salvation by receiving Christ as Savior, that's a Christian. So those who have done that, then God's plan for your life is that you do a life of good works, that you work out your salvation, you demonstrate that you're a saved person. And uh, this is why Paul exhorts uh, Titus and Timothy, um, remind them to be careful to maintain good works. Do good works to those in the household of faith. Do good works to those outside of the household of faith. Work out your salvation. And so with fear and trembling, um, respect and awe towards God. Um, we're to remember the transcendent holiness of God. Let me just let you in on a little clue that helps me. one-on-one -on -one mentoring a younger Christian doesn't just benefit them. It benefits me. Because it keeps me under the authority of the Word. And if I'm teaching them that they need to be obedient, then I don't want to sit there and be a hypocritical teacher. And I'm reminded every time I go through the lessons on Every Christian has three enemies. Uh, victory over sin, resisting temptation. I'm reminded that I myself have to be obedient. And so if you 
will get involved and take a younger Christian and begin to disciple them, then you can have that working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so one of my concerns is, man, I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to be a hypocrite to these people. I want to be consistent and true and obedient. So it's a great blessing to you as well as to the one that you're discipling. Now, verse 13, here's a, a wonderful concept that might really help you today uh, in your walk with Jesus. Look at this. This is a powerful verse. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Okay? Um, there's another verse. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, Christian, look at this. Concentrate, please. Pay attention to this. God is always working in your heart. He's always at work in your life. There's never a moment where his energy is not working in you. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. Now, here in verse 13, God is even creating within you the desire to do his will, and he's giving you the power to do his will. What a wonderful thing when you're trying to work out your salvation that you're not relying upon your own effort to do so. You're relying upon the energy and the power that goes along with this. This word work here, present active uh, tense, continuous effective work. God is always continuously effectually working in you. His power, his work in your heart is not going to fail. Okay? And so worketh here uh, means to energize, to work effectively. We get our English word energy and energize coming from this word. So it's God's energy that's working in you to desire what he desires. It is God's power to give you the desires to be obedient to his will. Um, that's so helpful when we get into that besetting sin. And we sometimes think, ah, I just can't help it. I did it again. Well, were you trying to do it or were you allowing God to work through you? Were you living life in your own strength? You know what? If, if you're trying to resist temptation in your own strength and your own energy, you will fall. Because you have to rely upon the energy and the strength and the wisdom and the power that God is putting in you. And so, to will, or a translation of the Greek meaning to desire, um, that refers to this desire that comes from um, one's emotion. God's going to put it in your heart. Okay? So what does that teach a Christian about his or her emotions? God wants them. God wants your emotional life. Okay? He, he wants every single part of your life. 
And so he does not merely just leave then us as his children or a saint to desire to do his will, then he provides the necessary power to do it. So that's why I say it this way. Every commandment of God comes with the empowerment to obey it. Every commandment of God comes with the power to obey it. So we don't have an excuse. We can work out our salvation in the strength and the energy of his power. And so what can you do then as a Christian? You can work out your salvation as an obedient child. You can obey. Hey, can children obey? Yeah, they sure can. All right? And so this is a wonderful thing. We can obey God. All right, let's go on to the next point here. Uh, let's go down to verses 14 and 15. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, uh, that you may be blameless and harmless as the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom is ye shine as lights in the world. Um, did you see in the news this week that um, some astronomer um, discovered a supernova? Did, did you see that? All right. So a supernova that, that's growing brighter and brighter. And uh, so they're out there looking uh, at the stars and, and they see this great light that's out there. Um, the reason why stars shine so brightly is because they're shining in the darkness of outer space. And we live in a very dark culture. Uh, culture's going so dark these days. And you as a Christian are that light that shines in a generation which is crooked and perverse. Hey, listen, if you don't think this generation is crooked and perverse, all you have to do is look at how companies are trying to be trendy and fashionable with their marketing at this time of year, specifically the month of June. Are you, are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? And they're losing billions. I'm thankful for that. All right. But that's darkness. It's the darkness of a mind that is not enlightened with the truth of the word of God. And so we as Christians, we shine in a crooked and a perverse generation. Now, we want to do, uh, we want to work out our salvation as shining lights. So working out our salvation as shining lights results in joy. And so do all things without grumbling or disputing. You do everything without complaining or arguing. Um, unsaved people might be expected to complain and dispute, but a Christian should have a changed life. We do the work God has for us without being negative or rebellious. Ooh, that's a hard thing in the life of Christians in a church. We, we take such a negative and a rebellious thought about working for the Lord. Blameless. Uh, is without defect. It refers to the inspection of an Old Testament sacrifice animal. You, in the Old Testament, you could not bring a blemished animal to the Lord. He wouldn't accept it. Maybe it was a, a little lame, or maybe it was a little scarred, 
maybe it was blind, uh, something in it had some kind of a defect. Well, that's what this word blameless here means, that in our character, we don't have a, a fault where people can observe something about our character that is sinful, that, that is not blameless. And so Noah lived in his generation, and he was blameless. Um, I think Noah lived in a generation that was just a little bit wickeder than we are today. I think we're rapidly matching that, all right? Um, violence filled the earth in his day. Do you, do you see violence filling our earth today? Do you see violence filling our country today? Yeah. And so we need to live a blameless life in, in that generation. Above reproach, um, once again, it, it's used to indicate moral uprightness. Um, now, it does not mean sinless perfection. We have some good brothers in the Lord. They belong to a different denomination, the Wesleyan denomination, um, and they're saved, but they believe that they reach a point in their Christian experience where they sin no more. Okay? And that's called uh, Christian perfectionism. And so they hit that point and they don't sin anymore. Well, the problem with that way of thinking is that that's not the reality of Scripture. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have no sin, we, Christians, deceive ourselves. So don't be deceived thinking that you've matured to the point where you're not going to sin anymore. Just not true. Okay? Pastors sin, deacons sin, Sunday school teachers sin, you sin. And we have to confess. So that's not what this means, but it means that we're growing in maturity. All right? As a Christian, we're mature people. So are you a mature Christian? I can remember when I was a teenager, we would go out to uh, a uh, city park called Lake Story, and there was a complex of sports fields out there. There were baseball diamonds, softball diamonds, soccer fields, and uh, roads that would run along the edge of the lake. And so coach would have us run those roads um, and then come back in. It was usually about a mile or so. And um, he would be pushing us to, to run it for our personal record, our best PR, right? And um, many times we would run past cars where these 30-year-old guys were cranking out the, the acid rock, you know, of the 80s. And uh, they were sitting in there, and they're smoking or doing drugs, and, and they're bumming out when they should be at work providing for their family. And I can just remember Coach bringing us a devotional and saying, no, 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 guys, when you grow up to be a man, be a man. Be a mature man. Don't be like these bums sitting over here that are just wasting life. They should be out working and providing. They should be doing something productive with their life. Don't be like that. Well, what about you as a Christian? Are you that sewer maple kind of Christian? Growing in the wrong ways, 
for you growing as an oak, slow and steady but sure. And so be growing in maturity in your Christian faith. Now this word generation here in uh, verse 15, this word is used in, in a very broader sense to depict uh, or to describe lost humanity against the background then of general human depravity, God expects you as a believer to shine like stars. You are the light of the world. No man lights a candle and hides it under a bushel. Right? So American political figures used to call America um, that city on a hill, right? That was always that, that light and shining beacon for freedom. Well, you, Christian, are that shining light in a crooked and perverse generation. Are you shining brightly for Jesus in the day and the time in which you live? We live in a very darkened world. Um, good friend of mine, pastors over in San Francisco, he's preached here before, David Innes, and uh, he is on uh, 1212 uh, Geary Street at the corner of Geary and Franklin. It's about one block outside of what is known as the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. Have you ever heard of the Tenderloin? Raise your hand. Okay. And um, they constantly have people uh, sleeping in their courtyard and the door of the church. And uh, the Tenderloin is just that, that area that, well, maybe it's spread beyond the Tenderloin now in San Francisco, but it was that area of the city that was just so decimated by sin. And this is what Dr. Innes used to say. The light of the gospel is custom made for darkness. Meaning that as his church, Hamilton Square Baptist Church in downtown San Francisco, took the light of the gospel into San Francisco, it was custom made for the darkness of San Francisco. Hollister's in darkness, Calvary Baptist Church. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the religious organization, I'm talking about you as people are supposed to be that shining light for the darkness of Hollister. If you don't think that Hollister's in darkness, why don't you just pay attention to the County Board of Supervisors and the City Council? Uh, why don't you pay attention to what's being taught in the local schools? Why don't you pay attention to the crime that's taking place in this city? Just pay attention, folks, and you'll understand that you are that custom light that's to shine because you're made to shine in darkness. And so it is the brightness of the Christian life that sheds light of the gospel message to those that are sitting in darkness. Um, this is what the Bible says um, about uh, unbelievers. Um, this comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. They have corrupt themselves. They are not as children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Uh, don't join with people in their crookedness and reverse, okay? Uh, this is in opposition to the righteousness of God, referring to what God expected, once again, of Old Testament worshipers. Um, crooked and perverse are deviations. In the Old Testament, it's described as sin and iniquity, as trespass. 
uh, just shoot straight with you here, okay? You're not hearing a lot in society anymore about sin. We're offending a holy God, and it's just not talked about in society anymore. The only places you hear that talked about is in church. And it would do our whole country good if we remember that there's a holy God that we're going to give an account to. Is it would change our behaviors. It would change our thoughts and our values. And so you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, nor on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Work out your own salvation. It results in joy. And so this is the attitude that we have. Don't be a complainer. And then the importance of actions. Get busy for the Lord. Do something that makes a difference so you can shine. All right, let's look here at the third point here. Uh, this is the first half and, and second half of verse 16, so let's look at that. Uh, Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So working out your salvation as a relay runner results in joy. So first of all, let's look at this first part um, here in verse 16. Holding forth the word of life. The idea there is extending something out. All right? So would you, don't hit anybody when you do this, but why don't you put your arm out like this? You're extending something out, okay? Holding forth, what are we as Christians supposed to extend out to other people? What is it? The word of... Well, let's look at verse 16 again. Holding forth the word of life. So you as a Christian, you're supposed to stretch out. You're supposed to have something, and you're extending it to other people. Now, relay runners, and you know what a relay runner is, right? It's where a track team has several members that run a certain segment of one race, usually about a fourth of it. And so they, they sprint their fourth, and they run as fast as they can, and as they're coming up to the next person who's going to run, they're holding out the baton. They're stretching forth the baton. And the next person then grabs that and takes off with it, and they run their section of the race. And then as they come near the third person, then they hold it out. And the third person reaches back and grabs it and runs up to the fourth person who reaches back and grabs it. And so you as a Christian... You're supposed to be extending forth the word of life as a relay runner to people in society who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. Are you holding forth the word of God, the word of life? The word of life is that of salvation. Uh, take your Bibles and go with me over to 1 John uh, chapter 5 for just a moment. You know, salvation is not found in your religious effort or in church or, or anything. It's found in the Son of God. So 1 John uh, chapter 5, let's find out what this life is, okay? Look with me at verse 12, 1 John 5, 12. 
And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in the church. This life is in religious works. This life is in giving money, being a philanthropist. Is that what it says? This life is in his son. So you're not offering somebody religion when you're handing it out. You're offering somebody a relationship with Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, he's known as the Word. It's one of his names. And when you believe in him, you have life. So the extension of the runner, holding forth the word of life. This is what we're supposed to do. So Paul often spoke of his ministry as an athletic contest. And uh, so he's holding forth this word of life. Um, gripping the gospel and putting it out there. Do you have a grip on the gospel? Do you know how to present the gospel to somebody? Let's start with something simple today. Use the literature rack on your way out the door, pick up the bridge to eternal life, and just pass that out. That has the gospel message in it. Or take another gospel track, and if you've got a family member who doesn't know Jesus, just copy the gospel track in your handwriting onto paper, and uh, personalize it by putting your loved one's name on it, and where appropriate, customize it with their name or phrase. But get a grasp on the gospel. Put it out there. Uh, hold on to it. Um, so you hold on to that baton. You don't want to drop it here. Okay? And then the expectation of leadership. Look at verse 16. holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain neither labored in vain Paul's expectation and catch this church listen believer the expectation of every godly pastor is for you to go into eternity earning rewards All right, so let me just point blank ask for a call out. You should say amen. <laughs> That's the reasonable expectation of every godly minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ following Paul's example. Paul expected, God expects this of you, a godly pastor expects this of you, that you go into eternity and you have earned rewards. That is going to result in great joy. And so this is the expectation of, of godly leadership. And the, the fear of godly leadership, and godly leaders do have concerns. What is Paul's concern? What is he afraid of at the end of verse 16? That he has labored and that he has run in vain. Here's Paul. Sprinting, coming up to the next generation called Timothy, holding out the baton, and Timothy drops it, and they lose the race, but that's not what happened with Timothy. Paul said, 
in 2 Timothy. Well, let's just turn over there so you can see this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul handed off the baton to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you hand off the baton to faithful men. And Paul says to faithful men, you hand off the, the baton to others, and they'll continue the chain. So this is a race from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation from the time of the apostles to today. He's saying, this is what we do. We hand that off, but my fear is that somewhere along the line, I've run in vain. And it's not happening the way that it should. And so this is the, the concern of a godly leader here in Philippians 2.16, that he has run in vain. He's, he's run a useless part of the race. So every part of the chain is important. The first runner, the second runner, the third runner, the fourth runner has to get across the finish line, right? And if at any point in that chain, there's a drop of the baton or some kind of an injury or just not a desire to run the race, then why were you there? Are you in it to win it? That's the idea that's here. We've got to be in, into the life of Christ. We've got to be into the life of our church to win it. Listen, you can't be out on a casual Sunday morning jog when you're in a sprint relay race. You just can't be going through the motions. When God says, exert yourself, hold it forth. So don't run in vain, because then that's just empty. What are you really doing? So examine your motivation. Uh, do this. All right, let's bring out our last point here. Uh, working out your salvation in sacrificial service results in joy. Look at verses 17 and 18, and we'll wrap up the message. Yea, yes. And if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Now, being poured out. Now, I want you to look here at verse 17. So if you don't have your Bibles open, get them open and look at this here. Who's making the sacrifice? Who is it? Not Paul. Who's making the sacrifice in verse 17? Upon the service, the, the sacrifice and service of your faith. The Philippians are making the sacrifice. There's no easy way to live the Christian life. There's no easy way to be a thriving, growing church. Folks, sacrifice, a sacrifice is something that is dead. Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. You have died to yourself and you're alive unto God. But he's saying it's the service and the sacrifice of your faith. So the Philippians 
are doing their part. He is the drink offering that's poured on top of the sacrifice. So this is going back to that Old Testament sacrificial system. There's a burnt offering that's taking place. The fire is hot. The sacrifice is being consumed. And then the priest would come and pour wine over the top of that. And then the wine, the alcohol and the wine with fire would e immediately be vaporized. And what's left is the sweet-smelling aroma of the grapes. And so Paul is saying, you're being burned up, you're being consumed for Christ, you're giving everything, you're giving your life to God, I'm just going to come along top of that and supplement that. So here, Paul is saying, you're doing the work of the ministry. I only supplement what you're doing. My life here is only supplementing your sacrifice. So go further in your faith. When you're dead to yourself and alive unto God, then your pastor comes in and just supplements what you're already doing. And so this is the sacrifice and the service of your faith. That's what he's saying to the Philippian believers. And so then the sweet-smelling offering that Paul mentions there in verse 17, be offered the sacrifice of the service of your faith. I joy and rejoice with you all. So there would be great rejoicing because of their sacrifice and service. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. And so here, keep on keeping on in the Christian life. You too may experience joy under difficult circumstances if your primary purpose is serving God and serving others. Let's pray.